0: Good morning, good morning, everybody. Great to see you and worship with you on this Sunday morning. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, Madeline just gave such a wonderful prayer, so why don't we just continue worshiping with uh, jumping into some of the Bible passages we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is awesome. If you're here like that guy, (laughs) then you probably would agree with the fact that Jesus is awesome. If you're a follower of Jesus, at least, you believe that he created the whole world. Not just that, but that he sustains the world. And that one day he'll recreate the whole world. And it just kind of gives us a chill up our spine when we think about the fact that the same Jesus who created the galaxies and the mountains and the oceans, who created us and who saved us, is also in this room right now. In fact, He ordained this very moment of our lives, just like He ordained every moment of life according to His perfect will. And we just can't help but feel a sense of awe and reverence for Jesus when we actually stop and think about Him for just two seconds. And the goal of the Christian life, of course, is to never stop looking at Jesus with a sense of awe and worship for all He is and all that He's done. In fact, the goal is to, to grow in that sense of, of, of wonder and amazement of Jesus to become ever more convinced that He is worthy of the worship of our entire lives because of how amazing He is. And one reason the Bible gives us that we should never stop seeing Jesus as the awesome God who He claims to be is because He's not who His critics say He is. Have you ever heard a, a critic of Jesus dismiss Him as anything but special or powerful or amazing. Maybe it was even someone a lot smarter than you. I know I sat in a college classroom once and had a a professor who'd not only finished college but gone on with continuing education explain to me that the Bible was nothing but a book of fables. And if you've ever heard someone, maybe someone who's an expert, or someone in your family who you respect, dismiss Jesus as nothing more than maybe a liar, or maybe a crazy person, or maybe just a good person, but not the only way to God. It's possible that that sort of dampened your faith in him a little bit, that your sense of, of awe and worship of him sort of diminished a little when you heard someone who would know kind of pass him off is not really that great after all. That might have been what was happening to some of his earliest disciples one day when the religious experts of that day dismissed Jesus as possessed by Satan. If you remember in Mark chapter 3, the religious leaders, they come and they, they announce that Jesus is not only not the Messiah, but he's actually working for the other guy. He's possessed by Satan, they say. Now, when you're an early follower of Jesus in the first century, hoping that you're following the Messiah, that's not exactly what you want to hear from the people who would know who the Messiah is. The religious experts, the Bible scholars. And yet, that's exactly what they said about Jesus. That same day, in that same chapter, Mark tells us that Jesus' own family members arrived and they shared their conclusion about Jesus. What did they say? He's crazy. So many words. Like, Not only is he not the Messiah, but he's lost his mind. And we're here to try to put him away to prevent him from embarrassing himself and us any further. And we don't know, but it's quite possible that that didn't exactly make his earliest disciples excited. When the one that they're following, hoping he's the one, is called by the people who know him best crazy, out of his mind. And maybe you've kind of felt some of that yourself. Maybe when you're watching your favorite uh, political commentator suddenly get asked a question about Christianity and, and he demit- dismisses Jesus as nothing more than a first century revolutionary who was crucified for his trouble. You go, ooh, this guy's a lot smarter than me. And he's not impressed at all with Jesus. It can have an effect on you. It can diminish your faith in Christ if you're not careful. And that may have been what was happening to some of his earliest disciples when on that same day, he stepped into a boat with them and set off across the Sea of Galilee. We're going to start in Mark chapter 4 this morning. Mark chapter 4. And we'll start reading in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4. And as we start reading here, see if you can catch how we should continue to worship Jesus because he's not who his critics say he is. Starting in verse 35, it says this It says, That day when evening came, So we'll stop right there for a moment. They set off across the Sea of Galilee, and a a storm starts up. And it's a terrible one because water, waves are crashing over the side of the boat and filling it with water to the point it says it's almost swamped. And the disciples are afraid that they're going to drown, which means it's really bad because some of them are fishermen. They're experts on the water. So if they're afraid, it's time to be afraid. And yet Jesus isn't making a very good case for himself. On the same day, it says, that he's been called possessed by Satan and a lunatic. He's sleeping in the middle of a storm, a deadly one. And so they rebuke him. They say, teacher! Don't you care? We're about to drown. Let's see how Jesus responds. He says this in verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, "Quiet. Be still." Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus gets up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He uses almost the same words he used to rebuke a demon out of a man in chapter 1. I mean, it's making it seem like this could be something of a spiritual attack that was happening. And then suddenly, just like that, the waves, the water is flat. The air is perfectly still. And these disciples who were just moments ago terrified of the wind and the waves, now they're terrified of Jesus. And they sit back and they say, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. But of course, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. This is exactly who you've been hoping that he is, the Messiah, the promised king of Israel who the Old Testament foretold would bring a kingdom that in part would be free of ordinary daily hazards, including storms. And when you and I find ourselves in a similar situation, going through life cherishing Jesus as the awesome God that he is, and people start to tell us that he's not, of course we can investigate the claims of his skeptics. We don't want a blind faith. We want a faith that has stood the firing line of doubt. But let's not simply hear Jesus get dismissed as ordinary, unspectacular nobody and unwittingly let it start to diminish our awe and worship of Him. Maybe when we hear Jesus dismissed, we can close our eyes and try to picture what it was like to be sitting there on that boat with his earliest disciples, with the water still dripping down our faces and our breath still heavy, as we look at Jesus with fear and awe and amazement, because he is exactly who we hope that he is. And may we not only cultivate that sense of of awe and reverence for Jesus because he's he's not who his skeptics say he is. But may we cultivate that sense of awe and reverence our whole lives because we also remember that he's worth the inconvenience that he brings to our lives. Have you ever noticed how inconvenient Jesus can be? How when he draws near to you in all of his life-changing power and presence, that he can be really inconvenient at the same time, as wonderful as it is, to see how powerful and amazing he is. Maybe you sense Jesus drawing near to you as you, as you uh, feel that he's called you to serve the homeless. And so you do it. You show up on a weekend and for a couple hours... You serve the homeless, and you see Jesus move. You see him teaching you humility. You see him moving as you pray for the homeless and feed them and learn from them and hear their stories, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing. And week after week goes by, and then someone on your team gets lice. And they tell you over the phone the story of how inconvenient it is. Of how their whole family got lice now, and how they're missing work, and how they have to tell people they have lice. And you suddenly realize that Jesus is amazing, but sometimes he's really inconvenient, too. Maybe he calls you to host a Bible study in your home, and it's really wonderful, and you see people's lives being changed, and you see God working. And then your children start to complain about having people over in the middle of their busy week and the chores of cleaning. And suddenly you realize that Jesus is awesome, but he can be really inconvenient. Or maybe he calls you to give, and you start to give, and then your expenses go up. And you need that money a little more than you did Just a few weeks ago. Jesus is powerful and amazing, but he can also be inconvenient. That's what some people learned when Jesus' boat made it to the other side of the sea. We're gonna start reading again in verse one of chapter five. And as we start reading here, listen to listen to, to how the inconvenience of this powerful Jesus, awesome Jesus. Shows up. It says this starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of Geseris. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, ''What is your name?'' ''My name is Legion,'' he replied, ''for we are many.'' And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, ''Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them.'' He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pig's. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. We'll stop right there for a second. So Jesus calms the storm, and the way Mark paints the picture, he gets, gets to land, and it seems like as soon as he gets out of the boat, this man with the impure spirit, I think how he describes it, comes and falls at his feet. And what follows sounds like it's an exchange between Jesus and the demons, who are influencing the man. They beg him not to torture them, not to send them out of the area. Jesus gives them permission to go into this herd of 2,000 pigs, which those pigs then rush into the water and drown. Now, it's a difficult passage to interpret. You can probably imagine. But one interpretation looks at it like this. Jesus arrives here on the shore of this Gentile area, and he immediately sets this man free from demons. But he does it in such a way that he immediately presents a choice to the town where he's arrived. Do you want me here in your town with all of my presence that sets people free spiritually, or are you going to be more concerned about your pigs? And I think if you look at it that way, especially when we see what follows, we can all agree that Jesus is powerful and amazing and life-changing, but he also gives us a lot of choices, about choosing between being near to him and walking in his direction with all of his presence and power, or saying, I don't know, it's really inconvenient to walk with you, to be near to you, because you're asking for a lot. It co- co- would cost a lot, apparently to be with you. Let's see how, and so for us, that might be, we're seeing God move, we're serving the homeless, we're, it's, a, it's amazing, we feel that we're obeying Him, and we're seeing his, his power, and then suddenly, we learn what the crime rate really is in that area, and we start to wonder, if this is where God's leading me, and now I see just how unsafe it is, perhaps, there's a choice for us there as well, if it is where God's leading us. Do we go where God is leading us in all of his life-changing power? Or do we say, I don't think I'm going to serve the homeless anymore. I'm not going to host the Bible study I feel he's called me to host anymore when I realize how much it interrupts my schedule of the week. Yes, I'm seeing him move. Yes, it's amazing. But there's a choice. There's a cost to being near to Jesus sometimes. Let's see how the people of this town respond. It says this, picking up in verse 14, Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town, in the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now, I don't know what exactly the value of 2,000 pigs was in this day to this townspeople. But again, one interpretation is that they saw the man set free who had haunted them and had been a nuisance and impossible to bind clothed and in his right mind. And they saw 2,000 of their pigs dead. And they begged Jesus to leave. Please leave. Get out. And sometimes, when we do, sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we see where Jesus is calling us, but we also see the sacrifice, the inconvenience. And we say, Jesus, please get away. I'm not going back to Skid Row. Jesus, please, not in this area. I'm not hosting that Bible study next quarter. Or Jesus, please, stop, stop. I need this money for what I want. I can't give it away. And then sometimes what happens is weeks or months or years go by, and we start to wonder, why does it seem like it's been so long? since I've walked in that powerful, life-changing, awesome presence of God. And we don't even realize it's because we forgot that Jesus is worth the inconvenience he brings to our lives. To be near to him is worth any sacrifice. That is what we see in the man he set free, I think, He's, let's pick up reading and see the, the man's response who he'd set free from the demons. And this starts in verse 18. It says this, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell on the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So the townspeople begged Jesus to leave, but the man who'd been set free begged to come with Jesus. And so Jesus gives him a choice as well. He says, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And this man goes. This man does what Jesus asks asks of him because certainly it seems that he feels the inconvenience is nothing compared to being near to Jesus in that sense, you might say, to obeying and walking in the will of Jesus. And so may we also realize that to be near to Jesus, to, to walk in his life-changing, powerful presence is worth any sacrifice. It's worth any sacrifice even when Jesus not only inconveniences us, but inconveniences us by taking his time. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you ask Jesus for help? And he doesn't seem to be in any rush to deliver. Maybe you ask him for a job. And you ask him sincerely and with all your heart. And six months later, you still don't have a job. Or you ask him for a life partner. Or you ask him you ask him for a place to live. And it's not that you don't search. It's not that you don't pray. It's not that you don't try. But six months A year later, he hasn't given you what you asked for yet. And when that happens, you might even start to wonder or question his power, his awesomeness, his greatness. Because after all, here I am asking you for something that I need, and it doesn't seem to be coming. That question may have, may have been on the mind of a man named Jairus when Jesus' boat arrives at its next location, being kicked out from this Gentile area. Jesus gets back on the boat, and look where he arrives, this time starting in verse 21. It says this starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now we'll pause right there for now. So this time, it's not, a, it's not a man with an impure spirit. It's a man with a dying daughter who falls at Jesus' feet. And it doesn't need to spell it out in detail. We can tell this is an urgent request because it's his only daughter, it says, which means he probably loves her. And he's a ruler of a synagogue. He's one of the religious leader type. And they don't like Jesus. They just called him possessed by Satan. And yet, putting everything on the line, desperate, he falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to come. And then, curiously, it says that Jesus went. Meaning, sounds like, they started to walk towards the location of the dying girl which is interesting that Jesus starts to walk there because walking is kind of slow, especially when it notes there's a big crowd pressing around him. This is not going to be a quick journey to a dying little girl. We know, of course, that Jesus doesn't have to walk there because on three other occasions, Jesus, being God, simply speaks when someone comes to him with a request like this. And just like that, from a great distance, the person is better, healed, recovered. And yet, says Jesus went. Jesus walked to a dying little girl. Maybe you feel like Jesus is walking to answer your request. As you call out to him for help, And the answer doesn't seem to be coming any time soon. But if you can believe it, something happens next that causes Jairus' request to get delayed even more. Let's see what happens next as we pick up reading. In uh, verse 24, or verse 25, it says... and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came out and fell at his feet, Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So we'll pause right there for now. So Jesus is on his way to heal a dying only daughter, walking with a crowd pressing against him. And what does he decide to do? He decides to stop. He stops and he says, Who touched me? nothing. So he's like, okay, we'll just stay here then. Who touched me? And finally, this woman comes out, falls down, and tells him what happened. Now, we're happy for her, of course, but as she tells her story, and they all stop there standing, we can't help but wonder what Jairus is thinking, especially when he learns that this woman's been bleeding for years meaning she could probably bleed for a few more days and still be okay. There's something in the medical community called triage, and I'm no expert. But it means that when there's a little girl dying, you rush to help the little girl who's dying. And then if you have time later, you come back and you take care of the people who are having inconveniences and embarrassments. But Jesus stops, heals this woman, and then, whatever going through Jairus' mind, I would imagine, can we please keep going? Let's see what happens next. It says in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, that is, to the woman who was bleeding, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? The window of opportunity is closed. Jairus stood by and watched Jesus answer the prayer of someone that wasn't as important as his, as pressing. It wasn't as pressing as his. And now it's too late. Maybe you've been crying out to God for a job because you want to provide a place for your family to live and food for them to eat. And while you bring your prayer request to your life group, months go by and you watch other people in your group who are also praying for jobs find them. But they don't have kids. They don't have a wife. Yet God seems to be perfectly happy to answer their requests. As you keep praying month after month or year after year, why would Jesus delay answering our request, even as he answers the prayers of those around us? And then for Jairus, it's over. It's too late now. You'll never get what you were asking for. Just leave him alone. But let's see how Jesus responds. In verse 37, 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. There's a, it was customary to hire professional mourners when someone in your family died. And it seems to be what they did here. There's a crowd of people outside wailing and crying because the girl is dead. It's too late. And so when Jesus says she's not dead, they laugh at him, partly because they didn't know her, but also because they're professionals. They see a lot of dead bodies. And if there's one thing they know, it's when someone's dead. And so they laugh. The tension of the story couldn't get any more extreme now. Let's see what happens next. It says, After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talik kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this They were completely astonished. They gave strict orders. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus walks in where the little girl is certainly dead. And he tells her to get up. And you could just imagine the little girl laying there when suddenly color just starts to swirl back into her skin. And her eyes just flutter and (gasps) she takes a breath. And it says, they're astonished. They're amazed at what Jesus just did. Why does Jesus delay answering our prayers? He delays us to amaze us it's not because he isn't powerful it's not because he isn't awesome but it's because he knows how to give good gifts to his children and the day will come where every one of us will eventually say god i'm so glad you didn't give me what i wanted on my timeline because the way you told the story was for my highest good and for your ultimate glory. And so even when Jesus seems to be taking his sweet time answering our requests, we don't lose our sense of awe and wonder and worship of him. And even when people tell us that Jesus is nobody, He's a liar, a lunatic, a good person. We don't lose our sense of awe and reverence for Jesus. And even when we start to get close enough to him that he starts to change our life and then he makes it inconvenient, we stay close and we stay in awe and we continue to worship him because he is the God who created the universe, who sustains the universe as we speak, and who will one day recreate the universe for his family. He's the one who made the ocean and the stars and the animals. And he's right here in this room right now. In fact, he ordained this very moment as he ordained every moment according to his perfect will, because Jesus is awesome. Let's pray. Dear God, our hearts are so prone to distraction, prone to wander towards the amazing gifts that you've given us, God. And it's not that these gifts of life aren't good, family, career, fame. It's just that they pale in comparison to you. And so, Jesus, we thank you again for opportunities like this, to just gather together with your people and to let your Holy Spirit cleanse our minds and our hearts and remind us of why we're here, to know you and to make you known. Because, Lord, that is our greatest pleasure, our greatest joy, and your greatest glory. We pray that as we stand now to worship you, that you would be glorified through this song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.